Welcome back, Flight to Friday podcast listeners. Uh, we got the whole team back together. Kenny, what's happening, dude? Hello, everyone. How we doing? Man, this is good. And we got, uh, even our producer's got a microphone in front of his face today. I don't know if he wants to say anything. Hello. I right, got one word out of him. Uh, How was Ahars, guys? It was good. It was great. Yeah. yeah. Had a blast. We had, um, what the heck, do we, how many students did we put through? Five weeks times 16, public math, 80? Something like that. Uh, yeah, got the first five-week session done, and I'm happy to say that uh, the Coast Guard found funding for the spring session, so that's also going to happen. That's official, yeah. huh? Well, now that I said it on here, hopefully that makes it official. Yeah, we'll keep saying We're it. just looking for funding for the travel claims now. Yeah. That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit too much. Yeah, it was good. There was uh, there's some good weather, good waves. Absolutely. How has been, how's ATC been? Same old, same old. Yeah. Yeah. We're in the Hurt Locker for the 65 Delta right now. None of them up. Zero. Four for zero. Four for zero. Four for zero. And we're in the middle of the ATC standards right now. Yeah. So that's been exciting. Hey, I'm, I'm excited about today, guys. Um, this episode is, is a pivot for us. I don't know if we've talked to anybody from an outside entity in our podcast, have we? I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're, uh, we're going to be talking with uh, the CEO of Priority One Air Rescue. I believe that's the official name. Probably Brad Matheson. Brad Matheson. Um, yeah, so we got that going on. He's real cool. Hopefully he lives up to the to the hype. Mm-hmm. You so. said you had some questions for us. Oh, I do. So I thought since this episode, it will hopefully, if we do everything right, release around Christmas slash New Year's. So I thought I'd ask you guys a couple like, would you rather aviation style questions? Oh boy. Ready. Let's see. Would you rather Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve duty? I'm, I'm New Year's Eve all the way because I have kids, so we're probably going to bed early anyway, so... I'd rather take New Year's Eve. Yeah, I would say, actually, it doesn't really matter. I would do Christmas Eve uh, for me. Yeah. I don't okay. have any kids yet. Uh, best Sunday duty Christmas movie? Uh, Chevy Chase, Christmas Vacation, hands down. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. You that's, can't get better than that. Yeah, that's a good one. That's great <laughs> for right before you do the safety survey, too. Uh, should a wardrobe be decorated, or is that too much work for the morale officer? What do you think? Yeah. I'll defer. I don't, I don't I've never, I, I don't think I've ever been in a unit that has had a decorated uh, wardroom. Have you? Uh, if they have, I didn't notice. Yeah. So that's the spirit. Yeah. We're a, we're a holiday <laughs> spirit right yeah, there. Yeah, got it. <laughs> nope. Best safety stand down training. Oh, man. When I was in San Francisco, we had um, one of the SR 71 black, uh, whatever. That guy was awesome. Pilot. What? Yeah. He came up for ours, too. Yeah. And it was, that was awesome. What about you, dude? It's got to be the Josh Poinos. Oh, yeah. I don't know if anyone out there that's at uh, either Hitron or San Fran, but uh, Josh Murphy, one of the best safety officers that the Coast Guard ever saw, would (laughs) uh, be basically Tosh Poinot, but it was Josh Poinot, and it was safety-related, but pretty much just went for laughs. Almost got him fired a couple times. But (laughs) it was was some some quality, quality training that he would provide. But uh, I think most people just care about, like, the training that will get us out the soonest is probably what everyone's going to vote for. Yeah, we had yeah. to do the, the hazmat training up in Humboldt, and so we just brought the MSD up there. Yeah, I remember uh, my favorite one was when you guys made fun of Captain Wilson, now CEO of uh, ALC, for losing SpongeBob. And you had a whole, like, Sarah McLaughlin video of how sad everybody was for losing him. Yeah, I, I think Mac Isom did a, a tribute to SpongeBob. <laughs> yeah, that, that flight... It was uh, 
a newly purchased SpongeBob. It was his first ever flight. They deployed him like off of, in between like Alcatraz and Golden Gate, and there was like a four knot current, and it took him forever to set up, and they never found him, and so they like directed the boat. So the boat's literally doing like search patterns <laughs> looking for SpongeBob, and they never found him. But yeah, the the tribute to SpongeBob video is pretty funny. He's like down in Magoo, crushing beers on the beach. He's like riding Harleys and stuff. It was funny. That's where uh, that's where Tad he gone Wilson uh, got his uh, he gone he gone <laughs> shout out to him. All right, uh, what else you got, dude? Any other um, slingers? No, uh, we had one in Humboldt with the uh, we did a wet lab one one time. We had CHP come in and got a couple swimmers liquored up and uh, made them do like Django puzzles and stuff like that. You guys had a wet lab? Yeah. Oh my god, I thought that was only at like BO school. Nope, it was. It was pretty exciting. What was their drink of choice? You know, um, one of so one guy was like craft beer, one guy was like hard alcohol. That, it, but they were monitoring like how much they had, and so by the end of it, though, during the like CEO's like outbrief of it, th- those guys were they were walking out the door. So they were done. <laughs> <laughs> they were done for the day, giving themselves liberty. So, um, okay, best holiday party location. Ooh. All of my holiday parties, I think, have been on base at this point. And I will say that the holiday parties, um, when you got a good crew, it doesn't really matter where you're going to be. But mm-hmm. um, I feel like every time like you try and go to a brewery, it's always super expensive. And But that that would also be a top choice for me. We're going to a golf course. I do like weeks. I like that. That's an... Unofficial holiday party. For who us, throws though. the best? Who <laughs> throws the best holiday party? Who has the most morale money? Ooh. Doesn't uh, Hitron do like a full-on casino night holiday party? Is that a thing? I don't know. No. Okay. Uh, the last one I got. One tip for success for a Santa fly-in. Oh, you got to paint the nose cone red. Perfect. <laughs> don't tell Evan. <laughs> oh man. Definitely, if you haven't hovered in that spot before get a little sandblasting done out of the way before you have all the kids because nice. I've definitely seen that where like all the kids are looking and then you come into a hover and yeah everyone's like running away <laughs> great advice great holiday advice for all of the listeners do not sandblast all the kids yes. especially if they're the CEO's kids uh, yeah all right. and that's all we got Sam you want to introduce the yeah let's let's get started here so uh, without further ado uh, let's let's get into it All right, listeners, we're going to jump into our interview here. We have Brad Matheson on the phone, and uh, he is the CEO of Priority One Air Rescue. They do uh, training all throughout the world for search and rescue crews and uh, getting excited uh, to jump into this. Let's do it. All right. Hey, Brad, you on the phone? Yes, sir. Hey, how's it going? Uh, we're so excited to have you call in for this. You're you're our first guest that is a non uh, non coasty. Thanks for joining us. Well, and uh, honestly, thanks very much for the opportunity to uh, obviously get be involved in, in in your podcast. Having something focused truly on search and rescue, and and especially obviously in the Coast Guard community, I would just really appreciate the opportunity to be involved in this. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, th- thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, this is Kenny. Just a quick background because I don't think uh, we've ever met. But uh, yeah, 65 pilot, 
been flying it for about uh, 12 years, uh, mostly search and rescue. Did a little bit of uh, airborne use of force stuff out at Hitron. And yeah, we're we're super excited to have you with us. And why don't you just give us kind of a quick background, where you're from, what you're doing, and uh, anything that you might think is interesting. Sure, absolutely. So Brad Matson, um, I actually um, born and raised out in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So I'm the uh, token Canadian in our company. Um, <laughs> nice. My background started off uh, doing long line rescue um, underneath 206, 407, and then pretty soon um, the company got a Bell 212 and had a hoist on it. And um, at the time, I was going through uh, my diploma for occupational um, uh, health and safety and my um, bachelor's in education. So I was pre-wired for um, you know, looking at things from safety systems and obviously for teaching. So mm-hmm. at the time, you know, I was sent out to, to gather some information like, okay, so how do we train people on this? So the uh, uh, exchange I did with obviously up here in Canada, did a bunch of different organizations down in, uh, in the U.S., um, civil and military. And at the time, uh, we didn't have a Class D program that was approved in Canada, like an actual structured program. So um, I was involved in putting one together and having it approved by Transport Canada and, you know, was able to, you know, get everything launched and that's all great. And then pretty soon we started getting approached um, by, you know, commercial agencies or civil companies and, and different police departments asking for um, an actual, you know, everything in a box training program for someone like off the street, right out of the wrapper mm-hmm. um, and to introduce them into doing helicopter uh, search and rescue. So, uh, Pretty soon, more like by necessity, more than looking at uh, um, opportunities, started up Priority One Air Rescue in uh, in 2000, uh, January of 2000. So, um, you know, since then, you know, we've got um, offices in in Vancouver. We have an office in um, Valletta, Malta, and then we have um, two search and rescue tactical training academies, or SARTACs, we call them, mm-hmm. where we have hoist towers and. Um, Aircrew, advanced aircrew mission simulators, which are basically set up as, um, you know, rear crew cabins that are configurable and um, sort of training uh, organizations. So this year, I think we've completed uh, 10,000 students worldwide. Wow. So 26 different types of helicopters, about 10,000 this year. I think, we, well, for example, um, just this quarter, we've trained 224 students just this quarter. Um, you know, I, I pulled that up because it literally just popped up on my internet uh, this morning. So, yeah, we were able to go out there and obviously work in different countries and um, certainly become a little bit of a, a hub for for um, passing knowledge through different organizations. You know, if one of our customers learns something, we can kind of pass that on um, as an industry best practices uh, within our, um, you know, our cadre, or obviously at 31, but also, um, you know, everyone that we work and train with. That's great. Yeah, Brad, this is Sam. I'm just... I'm amazed too, because I, you know, I've been in just the Coast Guard organization and I always think of everybody doing their own training in-house and, and your company is probably the first one that I know of that does external training for other entities. And, and I mean, obviously I'm not in the civilian sector, so maybe that's the norm, but um, are you guys like one of the leading companies in that industry? Yeah, certainly. Like I mean, there's, there's companies that you can go out and do um, like you can, you know, the helicopters that are companies that have, you know, training programs and all that stuff. But for, actually outsourcing. So like, say for instance, like the French air force or the French special forces or the Dutch, you know, air force, or obviously, you know, the work that we do with the U S coast guard or other U S military branches, um, you know, having that commercial off the shelf program where you have like a recognized standard, you know, you've been audited by um, numerous, 
you know, civil aviation authorities like FAA, Transport Canada, YASA, you know, CAP 99, all that kind of good stuff. And then from the different DOD agencies, um, you know, including like some three-letter organizations as well as like CDT and, and stuff like that. It's, they, they look at it as, you know, there's this, there's, as you know, there's this massive debt in the industry for, for, for personnel and, and everyone is overtaxed and systems are, there's, you know, obviously bottlenecks. And so what we provide is a, you know, a quick hands-off capability that could send in their students, train them to initial to advanced. And then when they get back to the customer, they can really focus on the high speed stuff, you know, stuff that they think is critical for them to have their footprint um, involved in, in training the students. And obviously one of the big things we can do that is with leveraging simulation. So, you know, originally we bought our first simulator in 2012, just internally for our own air crews to train them how to do night vision goggles, because, mm. you know, using simulation, um, you know, you can recreate a whole bunch of standards. Like it's the same pilot scale. It's the same weather condition. It's the exact same evolution. So everything is a hundred percent standardized. And then as well, you know, when we looked at it, started operating in 2012, it was because of night vision goggles. You had to look at student performance, you know, like, so what did you endure as a student versus what did you learn from? And I don't know about you, but I took um, the training at the Bell Academy. And man, at 3.30 in the morning, you're really like, how much are you absorbing? Versus, yeah. as you guys know, when you guys fly the sim versus the middle of the day, you're like, no, wrong, cut, try again. You know, right. no, no, cut, try again. You know, and so, yeah, that's basically the, the niche that we've been able to build um, internationally. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners know this, but just to bring everybody up to speed, like your company provides training for the Coast Guard through the uh, Flight Mac uh, C-School so that, you know, we send our guys out to you and, and they get a chance to do what, two over 200 hoists on your simulator. How many is it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I was able to um, pull up some, you know, some numbers, um, you know, just through, uh, you know, we, we obviously have reports who do that, but generally they come out to our facility as a basic air crew. And then in their two weeks of training, um, they do their initial, you know, inlands all the way up to, you know, the 47 footers at nighttime. And, um, they, they usually get around 254 hoists, um, wow. you know, and just as a number for, for you guys, just for your program alone as a Coast Guard, we've done over, uh, 48,680 hoist iterations. So on our simulator Whoa. and our tower, <laughs> just for your students, almost 50,000 um, hoists. That's you can a- imagine, like, that's a lot of blade time. And that's a lot of stuff like, hey, where is this flight mech going to try to find its words or working on CRM or trying to get a site picture correctly? We can go out there and, and you know, fast through it, all, all that kind of stuff and, and really get to the specifics, and especially things like your EPs, like line entanglement, like how the heck do you train a guy in the back, like a flight mech, um, you know, how, how are they going to be able to identify when is the time to shear cable if you're not doing it in a synthetic environment? Mm. So th- those are things that obviously you guys know you just can do with sims that you just can't do yeah. um, in, in a live flight environment. Yeah, those things happen fast. And if you haven't thought about the what ifs ahead of time, you're probably not going to do it in the heat of the moment when the pucker factor is up. But at ballpark, do you oh, know how oh, many? Absolutely. Yeah, ballpark. Do you know how many students uh, have have gone through down there in Arizona for a Coast Guard? I I think it's that's a good question. I'm not sure, but I think it's about 300. Okay, that that's awesome. And I know when we see um, 
you know, the students coming back from the school, like it is immediate of their, their terminology is awesome. You know, you get out over the boat and yeah, you're still kind of working on drift and things like that. But just like you were saying the the baseline, the foundation of that flight mech is, is ingrained in them already. And it's pretty cool to see. Yeah. It's, I would say it's, you know, it's probably the most important work we've ever done. It is the, the biggest opportunity that we've ever been, um, able to afford is to, to work with the, the flight next school, because you, you literally see when they leave like this, this impact that you're, you, you know, you have a small part in what you guys do as an overall mission. But again, if we can, you know, just bring up that standard so that the, the input and output standard when these guys and gals get to you, that, you know, they're able to even, you know, spend, you know, that much more time, you know, getting better at their trade craft to do rescues that maybe would have been marginal now become a little bit more, um, you know, achievable. And, and that's cer- certainly something that we look at and, and they make us better too. Like the, the output standard, like, you know, whether it's the, the French um, Air Force or it's the UK Coast Guard or whatever, um, you know, we look at, um, we, we as an organization are learning tons um, through just, you know, going through and, and being able to cross-pollinate our people with what they know. So yeah, it's a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, I mean, just a, a dumb question for you because we're pilots over here with big egos and we like our tires inflated. How do we uh, how do we rake up in the search and rescue game uh, compared to other countries? Because it sounds like you train everybody around the world. Yeah, so obviously we, we're the no, best. And, and but. I, yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. There's actually that's a really good question, and I, I would I would put I I know I know I'm sorry, Steve, um, but I would put the Coast Guard is is the top organization for, for search and rescue for these reasons. Um, first of all, um, the caliber of pilots. So if you take a look at, say, your 65 guys, not patronizing you, like your power management and your level of attention to monitoring the aircraft and how you're hardwired to constantly watch the plane as opposed to, you know, get surprised by it. So, you know, the, the guys up front, um, and, you know, obviously your pilots are fun as far as your, your rear crew, as far as the standardization, mm-hmm. like it is really tough to maintain, um, good standardization and, um, the stand team sees volumes out of the stand team as far as like how standardized you guys are. If you take a look at, you know, how big, um, you know, obviously your AOR is and how standardized you are, that's a huge factor. I mean, we work with countries that are, you know, in smaller areas that don't nearly have that standardization mm-hmm. and then of course it's the the i look at it as a, a bit of a benefit having actual mechanics on the aircraft that actually are into into the aircraft and obviously can provide that support but then of course the rescue swimmers yeah so the rescue swimmers give you a you know it's a, it's a different caliber so there are organizations like say uh, the Salvamento Maritimo, the guy of the Godre Costoria, like the Italian Coast Guard, the Spanish Coast Guard, um, you know, as you know, some of the, the Sartex, like there's a lot of agencies that have swimmer free capability, but, you know, to an ASD, you know, like a Coast Guard part, um, you know, that's obviously something that's out there. Like some people that are really good, like agencies that, that we work with that are, you know, super sharp is a, like, say, for instance, like in the UK, um, like the UK, the style of search and rescue, they are, very, very good at a lot of stuff mm-hmm. as well. I mean, like if you take a look at their shipboard hoisting, you know how like we would have like a standard approach, parallel, dead in the water, bridge wing, you know, like just to kind of break out your channel. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
They've got like downwind, parallel, left to right, right to left, left hand flying, mean advance. They have all these different formulas that they practice as opposed to just making it happen. Wow. And, you know, they're, yeah, yeah. And so it's, you know, like I said, you go in there when, when you do these um, classes and you think, oh, yeah, we're really good. And, and um, I'm not sure if you're aware uh, for our company is we're the majority of the overwhelming majority of our company is comprised of uh, prior Coast Guard. Oh, um, I know that. Because we've got some, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, we, did, we just got actually the Gold Vet Medallion Award, um, which was really nice in the Department of Justice because we do hire, um, you know, we try to recruit and uh, employ vets. And, and you guys have this specific trade craft. And um, it's really good to be able to obviously integrate. Uh, we They integrate very well with the blue flight suit mentality, if you will. Like, mm. the, you know, there's some services that are quite different culturally. Um, so that, you know, again, speaks volumes because we do have opportunities. Now we have myself and some other people that, you know, from foreign militaries, um, French Air Force guys, which they are fantastic as well. Um, some UK people. So, you know, we have a bit of a cross section. Um, but, you know, kind of carrying on, on, on different agencies, uh, you know, the French Air Force as well, they, they have swimmers sort of, you know, like the Coast Guard or swimmer free mentality, but they mm-hmm. operate in teams too. Oh, they, you said so they don't like have, Star-Tex, did you say, I'm sorry, did you say they are swimmer free? They don't have swimmers in the French? Yeah, they'll do. Yeah. So the actual, um, you know, the agencies, the larger agencies that you, um, see internationally, um, it's a, you know, a stark difference between, you know, like a direct deployment or the, 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 uh, the down, uh, the, a lot of people call them winchmen, but the people that stay on the cable, there's that uh-huh. type of, um, SAR. Uh, and then of course you have like the swimmer free and then you have oh, swimmer I free, what I would call like a swimmer. Yeah. Swimmer free, like light, meaning that the swimmer, uh, or the rescuer disconnects from the cable to operate, gotcha. uh, versus one that's attached. Mm-hmm. And if you look like say, you know, the Canes do a little bit of it. Um, you know, uh, the French air force has swimmer free, the uh, Spanish, uh, the Italians, um, those are agencies that you see like have a swimmer free and, and some are, are, you know, really super capable. And then you have some other agencies that are also super capable, but they, all of their rescues, uh, the rescue specialist or those rescue swimmer will stays attached to the cable. Like, uh, I gotcha. UK, um, you know, Netherlands, um, you know, a lot of the countries in Asia, you'll see them stay attached to the cable. So it's, it's very different on how they approach these search and rescues. You can imagine. Yeah, that's yeah. In- interesting. Sorry. Yeah, Brad, let me ask you this question. What What's one area you think that uh, we could improve on in the Coast Guard as far as like operators and the mission that we do, just based off of what you've seen with different organizations and countries and how they do business? Uh, well, there's, that, that's a really good question. I think that for, for me, if, you know, we're a little bit more rear crew centric, of course, but um, it would be great to see additional medical um, capabilities in the back of the cabin, right? Mm-hmm. So like when, when the flight mechs come to RC school, we train them, they all get introduced to basic, uh, basic first aid. So we, you know, CPR and how to assist uh, the, the rescue swimmer in the back of the helicopter with uh, protocols where he or she may need assistance. And then, um, so that there's a lot of, there's a lot of fairly, you know, basic courses that, that are out there that, you know, maybe the, the Coast Guard could, could look at um, increasing their capability for medicine. Because, of course, as you know, nine times out of ten, when you're doing a rescue, they're, they're not coming in five by five and everything's good and they're brushing the dust off going, whoo, that was close. Mm-hmm. There's usually some sort of patient care module um, or component to that. 
so like everything, that's something that, you know, you, you look at, um, like say the French air force, um, the, um, their rescue swimmers go through like a combat medicine course too, because it's off the shelf and it's easy for them to obtain, but it gives them, you know, airway management, some basic cardiac management mm-hmm. and, and, um, you know, obviously some, um, higher skills than the EMT, you know, so some emergency medical technician with tricks, you know, things that are going to be very relevant to them in their, uh, AOR. So do you guys also operate, uh, like helicopters on your own as, as, as part of the company and, and do search and rescue, or are you just a training company? No, we actually do have an operations division. I should have mentioned that. So we actually have a training division, which provides, you know, instructors, whether it's our facility or their facility. And then we also have an operations division. So for the operations division, we just provide the rear crew only. Oh, okay. And so our niche market is they'll have, yeah. So we'll have someone get a contract in, you know, whatever country and there are aviation specialists. And so our job is to go in there, essentially set up the aviation component, get all the certifications done, get the training done. But then we provide the flight paramedics and the rescue swimmers and the hoist operators um, in the aircraft as well, because they just want that, you know, operating helicopters. Well, it's something we've looked at. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different skill set. And now we're going to start watering down our core skills on, on, you know, the mission training and mission capabilities. So, um, that's yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So you guys, you know, go down range or something for a month or two and then come back home kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we had, uh, uh, um, you know, we've operated, uh, for us military programs. So we started up a program in Hawaii, one in Alaska, you know, so they went for, you know, like five or seven years. And then, uh, same thing with, uh, the Gulf of Mexico for some of the oil and gas community for like, you know, 10 year programs. So we have like long programs and then we have like a short term program. So, it's something that's, um, again, a niche capability that some people require, like, hey, we have a contract for a year to do this. Um, you know, a lot of um, countries out there, like, say, for instance, Holland or the UK. So the UK, Her Majesty's Coast Guard, it's actually a private company that's hired to do that contract. So mm-hmm. they're actually not military or DOD SAR. They're um, civilian operators. And so they're, you can have those large programs or those small programs, you know, obviously, you know, scaled to whatever the the you know, size of the program. And sometimes they need staffing that are short. Sometimes they need long-term. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. So of, of all the helicopters that either you have flown or your instructors uh, have flown on, what's the, what's the favorite platform? That's a really good question too. If you look at it from like say an inland, um, like an inland star point of view, like if you were doing, um, you know, like say for instance, like, you know, Arizona DPS or, you know, search and rescue inland, like there's, a, you know, like the lighter twins, like the Bell 429s are a really good aircraft or, um, you know, the H145 is, you know, those are good aircraft for inland star. But, you know, when you're pointed out to sea, obviously, you know, the things that you want is, you know, legs and room and power, mm-hmm. of course. None, and it's that none whole, of those things are in the 65. You know, you can have, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cross the 65 <laughs> off that list. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, it's, and that's, you know, like it does, it speaks volumes what what you guys are able to do. And that was, where I had to kind of stop myself is one of the other things that they need is you just need to look at, you know, what, what is your, you know, what's going to be your replacement aircraft, obviously. And I mean, you know, if you look at some of the aircraft out there, there's, you know, like you look at what the Canadians are using or the, the, uh, the Norwegians or the Danish, they're using the one ones and the one ones are fantastic to get you there. Mm-hmm. It's like 737 safe. But once you get there, you know, what exactly you have and, you know, what's your hoisting profile going to be, what your altitude is going to be, your downwash, all those other type of things. So it becomes, you know, that 
hold balance. I mean, as an example, like, the, you know, the S-92 is, is a good aircraft as well as the Leonardo. So, um, you know, I love the 139. The 139 is a great aircraft, but it's got a, um, like a nose up tendency. I mean, back, we did the very first human hoist on the 139 in 2006 on serial number two. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that very first hoist we did, it was at, at the time it was the AB 139. Um, we were like, oh my God, we had, you know, there was a lot of different variables because of the nose up attitude. Rather than, you know, on the 60 and 65, you drop a rock in the water, you get those nice, equal conical rings, you know, mm-hmm. as far as your, you know, turbulent flights on the water. What you get on the Leonardo's or any craft that has a nose up attitude, you get a frowning hole. You know, so rather than these round rings, you'll get like these frowny faces. And what happens is if you, the cable is slack in the water and they hit one of those little frowny line ebbs of uh, rotor wash, they just go back and left. They go right to your seven or eight o'clock and get sucked huh. into the, the, the wheels, if you will. So yeah. it's trying to understand the, um, um, the benefits and detriments. So like the 189, it's like um, uh, Leonardo 189 is like the, the 139, but bigger on steroids, a little bit more like a 60 cabin. Right. But it has a, you know, at 100 feet, you have about a 60 knot downwash, where in an S92, you, at 100 feet, you have about 50, which is similar to like a 60. So yeah. you can see how, you know, it's a, it's a drastically smaller plane, but, you know, with that much weight on that small disc, you get obviously some of the detriments to it. So I, I personally like the 60s. And I know Ian at our office is doing like the high five right now, being a big iron guy, but <laughs> the sixties are a, a great aircraft for a dark and stormy night. Mm-hmm. Got room, got obviously power, you know, the, there's some things that can bite you in the plane, but it's, a, it's an overall excellent platform. Um, and then I've heard really good things about the 160, uh, the H160 from Airbus. Yeah. I've heard some good stuff about that. So, but for you guys, the, the, the 65 community, we, the 139 is a good plane for, for you guys. It would be, you know, allow you to have that intermediate um, search and rescue level, some power, some room. Yeah. And dual hoist. Yeah. For the love of God, would you guys please get a dual hoist? So I was going to ask that. Like, well, I don't even know anything about a dual hoist. Um, I, I'm guessing that you don't operate them simultaneously. Is it just a backup in case one fails or, or what's... Yeah. Okay. That's exactly right. So like on different ones, so like say on the Sikorsky, on the S-92, there'll be like um, a midship. So you'll have like an inboard and outboard. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the Leonardo's, you'll generally have, on, on the 139, you'll have a forward and an aft. And then, you know, on the 189, you'll have inboard outboard. So there's different configurations. Some boom, some are fixed. Um, but the whole point of, of the dual hoist system is just redundancy. So if you have a miswrap or you have um, some, you know, um, problem with the cable, that you can just automatically switch to your secondary system and not have to worry about, you know, whipping on an ERD or, or, um, you know, some other device, um, to recover. So for, for us, we've been really fortunate, yeah. um, that a lot of the oil and gas customers mandate that. And the planes that we work on are general ones that we, you know, in the civil um, sector, especially for like heli offshore, it's, ma- it's generally mandated, you know, and so you can see a lot of the systems, uh, Comoron or the, the 101. In um, in Canada, it's like a dual hoist. The, the Italians, um, at least the Air Force, the French Air Force, the UK SAR, they all have the dual hoist just for redundancy, so they don't have to worry about um, um, obviously uh, leaving anyone in the water. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, I was curious actually, I mean, cause you're, uh, from Canada, the, the cormorant, that's gotta be an interesting one to train to. Cause I'm assuming their downwash is pretty significant when you get over the water. Yeah. It's, I mean, and, and that is something helicopter. that, um, yeah, it just, it's, it's a, it's a game changer. Um, you know, the, the folks from Denmark and, and, um, Canada, they, they just have to look at a completely different hoisting profile and how they do, how they do their business. You know, as far as um, that rotor wash becomes a huge um, issue every time, you know, and especially, you know, some confined area landings, you know, that that sucker is not going to fit. And, uh, you know, a lot of things that uh, a lot of areas that you end up doing hoist a little bit more on some places that become inex- um, inaccessible for, for the aircraft to land. So, yeah, it's kind of a it's a crutch. It's a, a catch 22 that sometimes you have, um, you know, that airliner safe travel to get there but once you get there you're you're obviously increasing the workload on your crew or at least the rear crew dramatically mm-hmm. so talking about you know larger aircraft with you know rotor wash and stuff you you talk to our swimmers about like hey you know when you're underneath the 65 how is it different from the 60 and they're like oh yeah 60 has way more rotor wash but you know the rotor diameter is is much bigger and therefore like there's a bigger sweet spot when you're down under directly underneath the aircraft like mm-hmm. What have you guys seen as far as like, you know, recovering people or baskets or what other, you know, countries are using for their recovery devices and how rotor wash affects it and pendulum swings, things like that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. So like one of the things that we were able to, to do, um, obviously, uh, we were down doing the class for the, uh, the team in Mobile was to, to go through some of those EPs. And so with with things like spin like understanding your turbulent flight zone and like how the air you know leaves the the rotor system and what you know that will induce at one rotor disc below the aircraft and two rotor discs and you know some some things that are predictable by reading your landscape or at least you know assessing hey zero wind days is going to be an issue versus if i have 30 knots up the nose so you know a lot of the agencies um uh that you'll find doing mountain rescue they do something called dynamic hoisting um, okay. We employ dynamic hoisting, which is more like a 65 hoist where you're hoisting out on your approach. Um, and so when you have a flight profile of where you're approaching the target, obviously you have an increased risk of entanglement, which is, you know, 50% of all helicopter accidents uh, doing hoisting are basically from line entanglement. So it's a tremendous risk. But on the other hand, you can do some, you can obviously take care and mitigate some issues with your dead man's curve and how long you're going to hover and what's your power management going to be like when you get the guy or gal on the deck and they're disconnecting or connecting. And, um, obviously, um, you know, some aircraft have the power that can sit there single engine OEI all day. And some we have obviously a very, you know, whether it's going to be a, you know, single engine, single engine limited fly away or, you know, committed. It's that whole notion of, um, making sure that we're planning for the worst case scenario, but not, you know, opening up a whole, Pandora's box of hazards become of that. So, a lot of agencies uh, that we see um, use um, uh, this dynamic approach where you see the helicopters moving forward while it's hoisting. Um, you know, as opposed to like your traditional come to a hover, begin the hoist type of deal. Um, in that type, you can get obviously a buildup of the winds below the aircraft, and you can get a, you know literally like your little tornado going with your rotor flow dynamics below the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people employ uh, trail lines or tag lines. Um, some of them employ them better than others. Um, some, they, their trail lines are more hooked up to place the device than anti-spin or anti-pendulum, meaning that 
it, it also matters where you connect um, your trail line to the device. Is it to mm-hmm. one spot or is it to two spots? So again, those are, those are things depending on the equipment um, that people do. Um, a lot of people use like a soft stretcher or like we call it a pet bag, the patient extrication platforms, essentially like a, the Cordura bag that zips up. And so, you know, in aircraft, like say the dolphin, you can have that thing in the back and then you can pull it out any time. I mean, there's some benefits and detriments of that because while it's lightweight and it's always in the aircraft, meaning that you essentially can do a litter hoist anytime you want, the detriment is it doesn't protect the patient from the railing. It's not a very good lifting device if you have to pull them out of, um, um, out of a ship hold or something like that, you mm-hmm. know, because it's, it's, um, it's a soft bag, right? So, um, and then the next thing we notice is we're noticing a lot of people going into um, either getting away from straps, like their double lift or hypothermic lift and single lift, which people still do a lot, mm-hmm. um, into getting into rescue baskets and getting into what we call an AVED, which is like a, um, it was originally called a screamer suit. It's like, um, suit. Nice. or they call it a patient diaper years ago, but it's essentially like this little, you know, I don't know, what would you call it? <laughs> a little Swiss feet, if you will, that you, the guys sit in and, and uh, you can have them in a um, semi-fowler position or semi-sitting position when you hoist them. Oh, um, yeah. Which mm-hmm. is really good for patient controllability and for loading them in the aircraft, right? So mm-hmm. if you don't have a lot of real estate between the hoist hook and the cabin door, it, it lifts the patient up high so that you can let the hoist do the work. I mean, right. obviously in the 65, you just lift the hatch and boom in, which is fantastic. But in say, the aircraft like the 60, you know, you're going to have to Pull them in. kind of muscle them inside the cabin. And the more that they're higher, or the higher they are, the obviously it's a little bit easier that the hoist do the work. Yeah. I, I want to backtrack just a, a bit because you're talking about taglines. Because, sure. you know, we have in our flight manual, you know, we, we have to hook it up to the hoist hook, um, which, like you were saying, isn't the best for spin control. And, and just so that our listeners out there know this as well, like our new rescue swimmer manual that's going to come out has a new way of hooking up and with a, a detachable carabiner that this rescue swimmer can, can carry so that you can actually hook up to the side of, say, the litter and you don't need to send up somebody on a, you know, best roller coaster ride of their lifetime as they're trying to get pulled back up into the helicopter. Yeah, what was the, um, wasn't there a mishap a couple of years ago as, EMS or someone in Arizona, right? Like, you remember that YouTube video? Oh yeah. Yeah. Are you yeah. familiar oh, with yeah. that one, Brad? Yeah. yeah, I am familiar with that. We what, did. What we, happened we with that? Where they're not a customer of ours, but that one there is your your basically it's your your turbulent flight zone. So you know anywhere from like one rotor disc to half a rotor disc, depending on your airframe, is where you'll get your highest speed as far as your um you know your rotor wash as far as turn your conical power. So. The same thing, they had a, um, you know, a trail line attached to a single point that the trail line departed, like trail lines are supposed to, or weak link, I should say. So the, the weak link on the trail line departed, which is, they're supposed to do that, right? That's that, a separate hazard we just talk about, but the, basically the weak link broke and the stretcher uh, basically caught the turbulence flight zone and started into a spin. And, you know, there was... Um, to my knowledge, there was a delay in the time of response to having the aircraft fly away or get some drag on the aircraft, on the actual litter, I should say, that mm-hmm. would, you know, mitigate and slow down some of the spin. And it just basically caught up faster, faster, and faster, and faster. So obviously, it's a known issue in our industry. And it's something that, um, you know, the correct placement of the, the trail line helps that. 
the correct tagline management, like how much, you know, gusto the, the team on the ground is giving it. And as well, having your EPs, you know, like what is your spin, you know, what are your EPs for a spin? And, you know, some of the things that we have to recognize is what are the drivers? So what is the driver that caused that spin? So mm-hmm. in a zero wind day, you know, two rotor discs below the aircraft, you could have your ass handed to you and start a spin uh, just from the, the driver being the turbulent flight zone, you know, as, uh, from, from the aircraft or the rotor wash, if you will. Yeah. And then of course there's other ones that are drivers could be like, uh, you know, like a, um, confined area or you could have like a Canyon or you could have like, um, asymmetrical winds from, from overneath, uh, or over a vessel superstructure that can cause some airfoil issues. So, um, yeah, those are, that's basically what happened in that high profile, uh, incident. Now on that though, and I should bring that, it's really important that, Weak links. Everyone, you know, I think a kind of side topic, if I can jump in that. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Please do. I just, I just started yeah, sure. chuckling because um, <laughs> as you were talking about it, I just pulled up the YouTube video and you see that, you know, like they're 10 feet, you know, from getting that person in and it starts and then you're like, okay, that's, that's not too bad. And then you really see it start to spin. And sorry, I started chuckling there. I, sh- I shouldn't have, but... <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. We're <laughs> no, children over here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's quite something. Pretty horrific. But yeah. that that whole uh, idea of the tagline breaking, everyone, you know, here's here's a common, um, I, in my opinion, I feel it's a common issue. Is people look at it and say, well, we should have like a 500 pound weak link, so it would, so the weak link never departs. Yeah. So if you take a look at a weak link, the weak link is designed so originally it was designed so the aircraft is not tethered to the target, meaning the vessel, right? So let's just picture, you know, we're going to do a litter hoist and, you know, we've got the trail line attached to the litter and the trail line's coming in. All of a sudden the trail line gets wrapped, you know, gets fouled around some deck cleat or something like that. And then all of a sudden the, the hoist cable and the trail line become tensioned. So mm-hmm. the, the, the previous thought was we want to have a weak link involved or put in that system to be a weak link so that it obviously breaks. So what we have to remember though, is when there's no load on it. So we have to think ourselves, it's called the spring coefficient. And then we get to nerd it up here, but yeah, so you have the spring coefficient, which obviously the more load. So think about it. If I use the trail line to, as a placement device. So let's just say I, um, hoist my, um, swimmer to the the vessel so they're on the deck and now i'm going to do a bear hook um um recovery uh with the trail line so let's just say the swimmer is going to use um the the hoist hook as a a lightweight object so like a litter or something like that on it Mm. or or a bag or empty if if i load that um weak link at that point so if i start if i get the um the uh trail line caught on the cleat in the vessel and if the aircraft starts to drift, if I tensioned, if the cable transfers tension to that um, weak link at, you know, the more tension I put on that, the more that it's going to get a spring back effect, right? So it's just basically, it turns out to be essentially like what happens if you get your hoist hook stuck on a vessel. Yeah. You know, it's going to break at the closest point, which is generally the hook. And where, you know, Newton's learned law, action, reaction, right? So where is that cable going to end up? Probably in our rotors, if we're not unlucky, of course, maybe it will hit some other part of the aircraft. But that same thing is what we can happen if we have empty hooks or lightweight. We can actually super load that, and then we're we're creating a, a, a huge risk. So we just want to make sure that you know people understand that there's never there's always some give and take. Mm-hmm. Um, no you know, pun intended. To weak leaks in general. 
Yeah. That's something I've never thought about, Brad. That's, that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, you have to remember, like, say, like, so you have to think too, what happens if you guys are, say you're hoisting in the dolphin and this is something that's important too. Let's say you're hoisting in the dolphin and you have your litter attack or your, your baskets or, or whatever a litter. Let's just say you're doing a litter hoist and, um, you know, all of a sudden you get a master caution, you have to dump your nose and fly away. Mm. Right. So there's a trail line attached. So the swimmer's on the deck. Um, the swimmer's got the trail line and aircraft is now dumping those to get some forward airspeed and flying away. So you can picture that trail line is screaming out of that swimmer's hand. Mm-hmm. And now he or she's going to be like, okay, so am, uh, is that person going to be able to break the weak link to free up that polypropylene rope from flying on the back of your aircraft? So obviously with you guys with Thunderstrom, it may not be as catastrophic, but if you have a tail rotor and a polypropylene, you know, uh, line flop behind the aircraft, it could be um, a hazard. So, you know, again, it's the idea of, you know, looking at, you know, even the bigger picture of power management and do we have a weak link that's actually a weak link? It's not, we just, you know, try to try to pull a weak link and break a 500 pound weak link. Yeah. You know, it's not going to happen. So like, our weak links that we use are like around 125. So at 125 pounds, if the aircraft leaves, you can actually break it. Or if I run out of tag line, right? So mm-hmm. if the trail line's coming in, you run out, you can actually snap it. So those are some things specifically that, again, there's no perfect solution to it. Every every system has its benefits and detriments. You just have to be aware of them. Yeah. Yeah, we've been uh, practicing here kind of how to reduce um, swings uh, and pendulums and because we don't really have anything written in our procedures for, for what to do in that situation. And I know that you talked about it already, but, you know, just getting the aircraft through ETL or if you continue to climb, right, as long as the uh, flight mech doesn't continue to bring the hoist up because then you're just, um, that pendulum is just going to increase yeah, as you're going. Absolutely. So, you know, if, so if you look at pendulums in general, so if we look at a, you know, like a side left or right pendulum or something like that, there's, you know, you can look at your different ways to take care of it. So, First thing, you know, from an operator point of view is you don't want to bring in the, the load, right? So, and what is the first thing that the, you know, like your brand new person wants to do, right? They want to bring in the load. They're like, I need this to end now. They mm-hmm. just basically two blocks, you know, they pull the hoist in full speed. And what happens is, obviously we know as your driver, you can imagine this pendulum low, as we bring it in, it starts going faster and faster and faster. So you're actually detriment. So if you do anything, you can just stop hoisting, mm-hmm. put the load back on the ground if you can. Now, obviously... If you have, you know, you've pulled someone off the deck of a heating vessel, putting them back on the deck is not really an option, right? You know, so fine if it's just a swimmer to, you know, have them dunk their fins, but if you have a load, not so much. So, you know, obviously you can use cable control, you know, you can use your arm and your shoulder to actually arrest, you know, the load as it comes in. Don't pull back on it because if they pull back on it, you'll just create another driver, right? So you mm-hmm. just create another input that's going to create a pendulum. But the, the ones that we were able to practice with your, with your team in, in Mobile was basically to just one of the best ways is just have the pilot move over the load, right? So you'd be, okay, my load's swinging left, swinging right, swinging left, standby and right, 10 now. And you just have the helicopter do like a quick little slide to the, whichever direction you're chasing on loads, you know, whether you're chasing it left or right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have them just do a nice lateral slide and you're basically, it's an external load. You're flying the load. So you basically put the helicopter over the load and you can, unscrew your pendulum pretty quickly. Yeah. And then of course there's another one called G loading. So you have to be careful because there's slip clutch issues, right? So you don't want to pull the crap out of the aircraft and 
cause a an, you know G loading too much, but you can do like an ITO, so with a certain like an oscillation, like a conical oscillation where it's a real mess. You mm-hmm. can actually just start inputting you know some power and come straight up, and those drivers are going to be reduced on the load. So um, those are just some you know some things that we were we were able to you know practice in in, in obviously the training and, and kind of show the. Uh, the, some of the stand team on on some of those different techniques and and realistically, if you were a vert reference pilot, like if you were pulling lumber out of the forest or something like that, those are things that you would do instinctively um, mm-hmm. as a as a pilot. You'd fly the load, and that's essentially what uh, what we were able to do. That's awesome. So, is that something that uh, at our flight mix C school um, that you guys run? Is that something that you guys will intentionally be like, hey, I want you to not um, get perfectly plumb when we pick this load up and and see what a pendulum looks like hey what is controllable what is not how do we reduce it is that something that you guys are able to practice oh ab- absolutely and that's the, you know that's the thing too is that you know the sim we're we're practitioners who use a sim we're not sim guys and gals in, in white lab coats designing sim so we the software that we've designed and worked on specifically has those cable dynamics where you want the cable to do. So we have pendulums, we have spins, you know, um, all sorts of, you know, entanglements where the cable goes taut and you have to shear it. And so we definitely cause that. So we'll, you know, even if the student gets the, you know, cons the aircraft perfectly over the, the hoisting spot, we'll have them slide over and we'll induce a pendulum and have them recognize it and, and take care of it. So we teach that as an industry best practices. So it's not a, should shall it's like hey this is a, an industry best practice and they they're aware of that of you know number one is the driver you know it's not just some ass kicking that happens randomly it's literally a cause and effect and so we want to obviously reinforce making sure they don't have that happen in the first place but if it does they have to you know so they in their hoist or their training they have spins they have pendulums they have uh, engine failures they have to shear the cable we have um you know, they'll get entanglements where they have to decide whether or not they're going to, you know, try to, you know, save the situation versus shear. And so that we can go through that, so they can start practicing those, um, you know, safe pictures and as well as like the flyway. Like it's, if, if you've ever called for forward airspeed during a spin, it's very not intuitive at all. Mm-hmm. And it's something that everyone in the aircraft is like, what? But if you brief it, it's like watching a scary movie. Like, you know, if I, if you and I were going to watch a movie and I said, Oh, by the way, there's a clown jumps out of the end of the hallway. And we jump in that movie. When you, you know, we see the hallway, you're going to know, Hey, I know what's going to happen. You're almost prepared for it. It's the mm-hmm. same thing, you know, we find with the students if we're able to, you know, brief it, tell them what they're going to see and then show them that that will sit in their hard drive and they'll be able to pull it up later on and, you know, pull it out during a brief. Like, Hey, zero wind day. We're in a canyon highly likely we're going to get a spin today because we're doing a high hoist and we don't have um, you know a trail line so let's just talk what what do we have as contingencies well what software nodes can we do you know if at this altitude if we get you know clear terrain we can start to creep up and forward you know and so we get them to put those together that it's not a should shall in, the, in your manual however it's an industry best practice that we can go through and and um, um, you know reinforce that because uh, it's in common use uh, today by a lot of agencies. And that's a really good discussion because I, I'll guarantee you that our our pilot cadre, if we hear, hey, litter spinning, 
from a pilot perspective, we are not thinking like, oh, well, I need to start flying forward and pulling power. We're basically like, okay, I'm going to hold a stable platform. You tell me what's going on back there. And so, you know, maybe we do need to open up some more discussions of like how to combat these things. Um, Cause like you said, it, it's going to happen. It's, it's a matter of when, and the more we can um, understand it and know what to do when it happens, we'll be more prepared to handle that situation. So we don't end up on YouTube like those guys did out in, in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that's no, I, absolutely. And it's, a, it, it's an excellent point for your, for your crews in the back. They get to see it. And generally your update is this guy like, ah, you know, he's telling you that this is what's going on. And if you just basically, you know, like I said, at one point is, you know, 50% of all hoist accidents are generally related to line entanglement. So we just want to make sure that is a low clear of all terrain, you know, and essentially, you know, you know what it's like, um, you know, looking down, it's hard to tell sometimes. So, you know, we have a signal that we teach, uh, for our rescue specialists and swimmers that, hey, when you're clear terrain, give this hand signal. So I'm going, you know, from emergency point of view, whether it's a single engine performance or it's a spin, I, you know, I'm basically like, all right, let's just say we're going to brief a spin. I'm like, you know, we're going to pick them up. All of a sudden, yep, there we go. There's the spin that we knew would happen because we can see the, the turbulent flights and we can see the rotor wash on the ground below us. So we know that's the driver. And once it grabs the load, it can start a spin and okay, so he's starting an, you know, he's starting to rotation. Okay, he's starting to build up in a spin. Okay, he's clear terrain. You're easy for or easy up and out, and, and you can have the pilot. You know, he's clear, still clear terrain up and out. Okay, and you get, you know, full 15 knots of drag, you know, 50 knots of wind speed, uh, and your your load will start to stop spinning. And so it's it's a very, you know, we don't want some like dump the nose like you know touch and go top gun maneuver. You just want a simple like, hey, let's get that. So picture this perfect perfect cylinder of rotor wash below the aircraft. Let's get it behind the load. Is basically what you're trying to do first. Remove the driver by getting the turbulent flight zone behind the load. And then of course, um, for the front to, to keep, you know, to stop the spin, you're actually looking for drag. Mm-hmm. So you want the, you know, basically drag on the load is going to basically arrest it. So a really simple um, process, but something that um, is proven. But it's again, it's not something you just want to go out there and pull off one day. It's it's um, you know something that's good to practice in a nice benign environment. Understand um, you know some of the uh, benefits and detriments of when you're going to employ it and at what stage you're going to employ it. But for us, I mean, I'm just speaking for myself as um, so I do both. So I should mention like for generally for. Uh, for our team, um, you're trained as a hoist operator and as an RS. Some mm-hmm. are rescue swimmers, some are just rescue specialists. Mm-hmm. Um, but for like for me, when I'm on the cable um, and or if I'm hoisting, like once you're clear terrain, you want to kind of if I know what's going to happen and you don't don't it's generally not going to get any better. You just have to make okay. We have that you know team discussion. You know during your briefing. If this happens, this is what we should do. Agree, yeah. don't agree. You know, if we have power lines or something, maybe that's not the play we want to make. Um, and once we briefed it and we're all comfortable with it, if it happens, you know, you can just make a very, you know, slow, deliberate, you know, um, up, you know, up and forward, get your 15 knots and no drama. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, from training coasties, but like the first step in our rescue brief as pilots is hazard analysis. And I feel like, at least for me, I normally brief 
hey, what are the snag hazards? Um, what's our power margin looking like? Um, and, I, and I rarely get into talking about what happens if we bring the, the patient off the deck in the litter and it starts spinning. What am I going to do? So um, I'm definitely going to take that to heart and, and start bringing that into my, my brief. Because like you said, if, if you brief it beforehand too, it's not the time to brief it is not during the uh, extremis you know, situation. It's, if you can, That's exactly right. Yeah, if you can pregame it, like you're, you're going to be way better off for it. So, um, you see a lot of us out there, uh, is there a consistent personality type for people who do, do these jobs, either as hoist operators or, or search and rescue pilots? Well, yeah, well, there's two things. There's, there's ones that are, I would say the common personality type. And I think the next one would be like more like the com, you know, the common successful, you know, I think the common personality type is generally alphas, of course, you know, mm-hmm. um, alphas, achievers, um, you know, pack animals, people that like doing that type of work. Um, what I will say is it's the same breed no matter where you go. Yeah. It's, it's the funniest thing. You could go to, you know, like I was doing a class in, in like Thailand and it's, you know, other than once you get past some of the cultural language point of view, you're like, oh my God, you guys are ripping that guy apart. It's the same exactly <laughs> the same no matter where. And so, of course, obviously the, the culture, it's like, uh, wow, he's tearing the guy's guts out. That's just like home. So, um, they, uh, yeah, so that, and that part is obviously something we see a lot. You know, obviously in the civil world, you, you have you know helicopter rescues like your pinnacle of, of search and rescue, or or like that whole trade craft in general. Um, you know, um, that's something that you see. You know, generally higher achievers. I mean, I think from from what I see as far as good operators is, you know, they talk about attitude to everything, but just happy to be there. You know, and that whole idea of you know you know maturity. You know, the critical thinker. Um, you know, that whole concept of managing yourself so that people, other people don't have to. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, being proactive and team oriented, you know, and focusing on what's working, not what's not working. And so I think those are some, you know, things that, you know, I see as, as common um, in, in, in the field that uh, you find the operators that do well in it, at least in my opinion. What, uh, oh, I got to ask one more question, Kenny, real quick. What, what, uh, nationality likes to have the best time? Who's, who's going out? Or can you even oh, say that's that? A, that's <laughs> a fantastic question. I would say that. Like the Brits or the oh French? Oh man, I should, I, yeah, I, I have to, yeah, I would say that there's, um, uh, yeah, we've, we've had that before where I would say that the, the UK folks, they, they definitely, they they, we went out there once and, um, it was with, uh, actually with Watson and they, uh, they decided they wanted to knock us down a few pegs. And so at the time I didn't realize that you can get beers with different alcohol contents uh-huh. and they, they, I know it was called dogfish. It was actually really good, but they were like, Oh, do you want a pint? So they go first and I'll have a second pint. And then pretty soon I'm standing there and it's and, and so like, I can't feel my face. And they're like, <laughs> wow. And you go up to the, cha- you go up to the chap. And you're like, you're, you're like your third pint in or whatever. And you're sitting there going, does that actually say 13 and a half? Yeah, they, they, they do, but there's the, you know, the, 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 the Spanish Coast Guard, they, they just, they love to have fun. And I think that that's the, the, the really cool thing. I think there's some that have different outlets than others, but um, the European uh, uh, mindset, of course, is that whole, like um, I work, um, you know, I work to live versus I live to work type of deal. So mm-hmm. they really like to play hard and, um, you know, uh, but yeah, you gotta be careful when you go out with those guys. Yeah. For sure. like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. 
Nice. I want to circle back just a little bit. So you said you did some long lining in your career. That's something that we don't talk about, you know, um, I think obviously because we have the hoist capability, but how, how is that dangling from 150 feet under a helicopter moving around at 30 knots, 20 knots? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's funny. There's some, again, it's just, you know, from what we see, there's some people that do it absolutely right. And some people that we look at and go, man, I, I just, I'm sorry, but I just can't agree with that. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously the hoist is the, <laughs> yeah, the, the hoist is obviously, you know, um, a, a fantastic piece of equipment um, for, for people that don't have the aircraft budget, et cetera. The, the, obviously your, you know, external load or long line system is obviously a, a good method. I think if people look at it as you just have to, in my opinion, you just have to think about the exposure of hazard of, of the worker, right? So mm-hmm. the person on the, on the um, short haul line, how far are you flying? I mean, if you look at the FAA regulations, it says realistically for short haul, you're supposed to, pick them up from the rescue site and move them to the closest geographical spot that you could basically put them on the ground and land and, or, you know, recover them. Right. And so we, we see some agencies that are basically picking them up and they're doing like a, you know, like a two mile flight. They're flying right over places that they could have placed them on the ground, but they want to put them right in front of the cameras and, or wherever the fire trucks are parked yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, you know, you look at it, some people like, obviously we do some training for like the, um, utility industry i mean obviously for, for wind farms or hoisting to to wind farms obviously we do only hoist but if you look at like say the electrical utility worker now those folks are are absolutely switched on because you think of the the hazard yeah and they're using the helicopter to basically pick them off the ground and put them on top of the tower or put them in a cart so that type of short haul is fantastic and it's all it's it's all pilot um capability because you know, you don't have a flight mech in the back on you left or right. It's mm-hmm. the, the person, the pilot, he or she looking out at uh, placing the load onto their target and precision target. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, you look at some agencies, again, they're, they're, you know, in my opinion, they're just accepting way too much risk of having you hang underneath there like, um, you know, it's a precision cargo. And you got to remember that, hey, there's a spot there. There's a spot there. There's another um, high profile spin incident years ago doing a short haul that there was, you could literally count spots where they could have just placed loads onto load being the rescuer and survivor mm-hmm. onto the deck, um, and then brought the rescue vehicle to that road. Um, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know if there was, you know, you know, gate was locked or whatever, but certainly to me, if I was to armchair general, which is something you shouldn't do. I mean, you see a lot of those cases where we're like, no, 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 we're just going to pick them up from this environment that does not sustain life. Mm-hmm. And we're going to put them to the shore. So swift water, a yep. lot of people think that you have to hoist them back in the aircraft. They're like, no, we can just, you know, get them out of that river and just slide them left, depending on, you know, the terrain overheads and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's incredibly wrong. When you're on on the cable, we also train like spy rigging, uh-huh. um, which is obviously that's the tactical end where you have multiple people. It's a very similar skill, uh, skill set, and there's sometimes it's applied perfectly, and then we see sometimes that maybe it's a little bit too much uh, risk that we would be accepting for having a person underneath a um, uh, single engine helicopter with um, um, you know hundred hundred foot line on it. Yeah, uh, there was a a sheriff county that would operate long line out of one of the units I was stationed at. And I'd watch them both guys on operational units and training. And it was amazing. I mean, they were fast and they were good. And like you said, though, um, 
you know, we're, we're all kind of type A personalities. And you're like, well, we, we just assumed a lot of risk to get this person out of this river or off of this cliff. Like, why not go the extra half a mile and take them right to where they, you know, right where the instant command post or whatever it is that it's waiting for them. Um, yeah, it, it is hard to make that call. And it's probably good to be reminded that, um, you know, every extra second that that person and or survivors on the hook is you are accruing risk. Exactly. Exposure. And that's, that's again, with that whole idea of your flight profile, when you're, you know, to, to look at, you know, hoisting on, on your approach, you're going to reduce your on-station time and you're going to approach your single engine, you know, um, exposure, right? So again, it's that whole dead man's curve thing. And that's the same thing, um, you know, with the, uh, you know, with the twin engine, like say, you know, the guys from San Diego, you know, guys power, they're using a 145 and it's a great airplane to use that. And they're phenomenal pilots. And so that one there, but they choose, again, they have their very, very specific margins that they fly. And then you have some other folks as well that, um, you know, like you said, they're magicians. It's a fantastic system. I mean, it's, we've seen too that some people buy hoists for their aircraft, like they'll buy a hoist for like a, a um, you know, like a smaller aircraft that maybe for the 407, you shouldn't buy a hoist. You should be doing a short haul because, you know, you're basically picking them up from this area and moving them here. So mm. it's got its spot. It's just um, a lot of people think that they're going to actually cush it up or whatever the heck when they see it, they're like, we're going to do all sorts of stuff. You're like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is what you can do with this piece of equipment, right? Well, I'm going to sling another non-aviation question from the back here. Uh, do you have a favorite beer since you travel all over the world? And uh, specifically because you're Canadian, what is your favorite NHL hockey team in Canada? Oh, that's actually, that's a good question. All right. So first of all, um, yeah, beer, I would say the, there's a one called West Tail Trappist and it's, I had it first in Holland, but it's, um, a, uh, you know what? This is how, again, how much of I am nerd. I actually have a picture of it on my phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. West Mall Trappist. That was a really good beer. It's, um, a, a dark beer, uh, from, uh, Belgium, but I had it first with the Dutch Air Force guys in, in, in Holland. So that was really good. And the other one is, have you ever heard of Garrison, the Garrison beer out of Halifax? No. Never. That's an, Try another it fantastic. It's actually apparently it's a, a well-known brewery. Um, it's kind of like um, you know, like a, what a road dead guy would be for you know, kind of you know, for for Oregon. But they mm-hmm. they uh, a brewery, the microbrewery for there's a microbrewery, and it's just a another one of those fantastic beers. Yeah, I have to find that one. What about hockey? What's yours? Okay. <laughs> oh, what's mine? Beer or hockey team? Yeah. Uh, Beer. Beer. Ooh, man. You know, I, I enjoy a, a delicious PBR every once in a while. So <laughs> no, I can't off the top, of, off the top of my head. I can't think of, uh, what my favorite would be. I've been on an IPA kick lately. Uh, and I was up in a story recently and, and Fort George has some, some good hazy IPAs up there. Chris Knife mm. was a really good one up there. So, um, as far as hockey team, I, if you're curious about that, Boston Bruins, best hockey team in the, in the country. I, I'm going to horrify you. I'm the Canadian that does not watch hockey. I know. Oh, uh, boy. I used to. I used to. I, wa- I watched hockey back when the Sedins were playing for the Canucks. And then after they left, I'm like, all right. Do you at least get coffee and donuts at Tim Hortons? I'm just slinging Canadian <laughs> stereotypes out right now. So, You know, that's true. I, like, But I had the same thing. I actually watched, uh, like, the, I, I saw I'm a Seahawks fan because that was that common talking point with people from our office or from stateside. Yeah. Now, yeah. generally, 
Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you know, obviously Boston or Detroit, I mean, those are, you know, huge hockey cities. But if you have like just general person you talk to, you know, football, college football. So I actually started watching that just for more of a, like a regular engagement thing and then start to actually like it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it, and it's, as far as the, the, the beer aspect, I love that aspiration that you have of, of that as a question. That's a really important question. <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially in aviation. Yeah. One of my favorite yeah. beers actually used to be Pacifico with a lime and I haven't had it in a very, very long time. I haven't oh. seen it out here in the, in the South, but I'll need to track that down. Got to get one. Yeah, Brad, normally we like to end uh, each podcast with some sort of uh, advice that you received uh, at some point over your lifetime that you thought was was lasting. Uh, but before we do that, uh, you got any questions for us or is there anything that uh, you think we should cover today before we finish up? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think um, from my end, I, I you know, I, again, I'm sorry if I talk too much, but it was more like just the idea of having like what I would consider like a natural engagement with, with you know, two guys in our collective field. So mm-hmm. hopefully I was able to kind of cover that. So no, absolutely. Yeah, no, this is cool. yeah, we invited you on cause we wanted to, to hear you talk. With, so thank you very much. Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. So what's your uh, piece of advice uh, that you've received over the years? Well, I, you know, I, I, I'd say that there's, there's two things. I think one in a professional level. So the best, you know, like if I, if I was to give like, like professional advice, um, you know, I would always look at don't reciprocate an action just because you started it, right? So what I see a lot of people do, whether it's for training or it's for operational level, is they'll start something, it's not going right, but they keep trying to force that, you know, square peg in the round hole versus, um, you know, maybe stepping back and trying your approach different, you know, mm-hmm. and some, it's, it's, a, it's a freebie to if you start your approach and it doesn't look right or it's not going the way you should, there's nothing wrong with bringing the cable in, get your, your swimmer at the door and starting in a different angle. And the same thing is doing rehearsals. So like professional advice is rehearsals, rehearsals, rehearsals. And what I mean by that is if you have a technical hoist, it's a great idea to fly that hoist profile without actually hoisting the RS out. So, you know, we really strongly recommend that, you know, if you have something technical, go ahead and get your starting position or what we call a rest position, get your pilot eyes on the target and have your flight neck in the back and your swimmer stay in the cabin or hoist hook in hand. So we don't actually, we're not going to dirty the aircraft and go ahead and fly over target, check your overhead, see if everything was as advertised mm-hmm. and then go back to the starting position and go in for real life. It's amazing what, um, what that will do. Again, it's like you've rehearsed it. So you know where your references are, you know, your overheads, you know, the tail clear, you know, the RS, so your rescue swimmer has a visual from a top-down point of view over target. And realistically, nothing's new. And if you discovered there was something problem, uh, problem during the rehearsal, you come up higher, you come in from a different angle, you mm-hmm. do something new. But as far as my professional advice, I think that would be something I would offer in Tradecraft. But I think that the, the best advice, you know, um, you know, one that I got, it's a little bit of an apple pie thing, but to the end of it, it's like, you know, they, they say, and it's absolutely true, um, you know, for me, one of my mentors, his name was Richard Magyar, and so he worked with us um, until he passed, and, and he had a ton of information. And one of the things that he would talk about is how, you know, search and rescue, it's, you know, typical, it's not a job, it's an honor and a privilege, um, again, to help people in need. And, you know, that should give us the, the sense of purpose and, you know, that duty to help others. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and to show courage when we get called on, but it's also, it helps us get past the negative parts of the job. So if we remember that what we're doing and focus on that part, that when there's the, the negative parts of the job, you know, maybe there's something to do with the shop or there's something to do with, you know, not being able to make that. If you just use that as your, you know, your compass, it really does allow you to have the perspective that I think allows people to be a little bit more um, successful in this career. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Uh, it's something that we struggle with. I think in the Coast Guard is at least on the on the pilot side of yeah, trying to stay focused of why you joined and um, mm-hmm. really just being a professional pilot and continuing to having these conversations that we're talking about and take thirty minutes over your lunch break and 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 talk about hey, what what would you do if you know this happened? So, man, I. I just want to thank you once again, Brad, for, for coming on. This was a fantastic time for us. I learned a lot. I took some notes of things that I'm going to take to, you know, when I go brief something or when I'm doing a training evolution or a, even an operational hoist of, of things that uh, I think will make me and my air crews um, be, be better. Yeah, same here, Brad. I really appreciate it. This is fantastic to get you on the, on the show here. Yeah, thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate the opportunity to to you know talk with you guys, and and um, you know again, it was a sincere pleasure to talk with um, talk with their our trade craft. Really appreciate the opportunity. You bet, sir. Yeah, best of luck uh, training the the other great star crews out there. Thank you. All right, stay take, safe out there. Yeah, take All it right. easy.